Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, I'm Brother Gregory, and I'm going to talk to you about the keys of the kingdom. And the keys of the kingdom, of course, are what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And we've gone over that before. But most people don't have any idea. They read the Bible and have no idea. They think they're following the Holy Spirit, but they have kind of a vain approach that they cannot imagine that what they already believe to be true is wrong. And so I've had an interesting conversation with a guy on Facebook on a small group that is kind of a home church group. And they, they know there's something wrong with the institutional church that they see out there calling itself the church established by Jesus Christ. When in fact, it's either the church established by Constantine or the church established by the daughters of the church established by Constantine. They're still not getting it quite right. And this morning, when we were going to Amos, I brought up Alexis Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, who looked at the United States and and came over here to find out about prison reform, etc. And then uh, began to observe what was going on in America and how it operated and what was the secret of its unbelievable success. Uh, that And people all over Europe tried to imitate that success, but they did not necessarily know what the secret of that success is. And of course now we have millions of people trying to get into America to become a part of the secrets of their success, except for the fact that they're, they don't know what made America so successful. They... And they're actually doing contrary to the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And, of course, it was given to the apostles to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but it was not given unto the people, so Jesus talked in parables. So when you try to explain it to a lot of people who just know the parables, they often don't get it. The truth is, and this is one of the things that this individual who cannot seem to quite understand the gospel of the kingdom. I mean, he just struggles with it. He lays so many things out for him so that he can understand, and he simply does not get it. Uh, he could still. We have hope that he may eventually get it, but right now he doesn't. Well, this morning we talked about Celsus, and, uh, who was a critic of Christianity, and, and I'm just going to briefly talk about that. We'll probably do a whole show on uh, Celsus, because he's one of the early writers writing about what was wrong with Christianity. And I read an entire uh, uh, dissertation by Jay Rogers on uh, Enter the Critic Celsus, talking about the modern Christianity. And he actually refers to modern critic of Christianity have delighted in Celsus. And so, but it's the modern critic of the modern Christian. And the modern Christian isn't the same as the early Christian. They're not doing the same thing. They're not doing it for the same reason. They're not doing it in the same way. As a matter of fact, 
They're doing it much like those who went into apostasy at the time of Amos, which we covered this morning. They're doing it much as the, the, those who were in apostasy at the time of Jesus Christ, which was the Pharisees and Sadducees. And uh, the, the modern Christian is, is just as subject to the error of the Nicolaitan and Balaam as anybody else. And so when you try to explain this, mostly what you're trying to do is chip away at all the debris and garbage that people have accepted as the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And the only way that they could have accepted those doctrines of Jesus Christ is to ignore certain things that Christ says. And they have a cognitive dissonance. We have an article up at Preparing You on Cognitive Dissonance. They have a mental block where they just cannot see the truth. And... uh you know, this, uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, Jay Rogers, uh, he, he talks about, uh, the, the Celsus, uh, anticipated the, uh, objections that have been raised by modern rationalists and evolutionists as to what the teachings of Jesus Christ are and what the teachings of the Bible are. The problem is, is that the rationalists and evolutionists don't understand real Christianity because they're looking at the apostate church, which is most churches today. Either the apostate church that was established by Constantine and did contrary to the decrees of Jesus Christ from the beginning, although they began to look more and more, just by taking on some of the perceptions and practices of the early church, they, you know, Roman government still fell because it was still adhering to the principles of tyranny. But the church established by Constantine took on some of those principles and was able to survive. Now, it did not really prosper for almost a thousand years. And now it is seemingly prospered. Uh, there were people objecting to what would bring this seemingly prosperous Roman church and its daughters who were born out of, you know, the Protestant Revolution. And I'm not picking on the Protestant Revolution or the Protestants or Luther or, or any of these uh, early teachers. Uh, they, all of them were wrong some places. I'm probably wrong some places. Uh, but, the I, that's why Christ gives us the command to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we need to be seeking to conform to Christ. Not conform to your theology, my theology, uh, somebody else's theology, but to Christ's theology. And of course, that's why Paul preached Christ first. I mean, the program that comes on just before me, they're, they're very much against Paul. They think Paul taught all kinds of heresies and uh, etc. I think they're kind of messianic, uh, but I could be wrong. I've only listened to little brief moments of their um, uh, of their show. But the reality is, is that uh, Paul was right on, but he was going to talk to you about things that were hard to understand. That's what Peter says, and they're still hard to understand because he wasn't really talking to you. He was talking to almost anybody, but he was specifically talking to Corinthians and Galatians and people in Ephesus and he was telling them the gospel of the kingdom and even when they were he was talking to followers of John the Baptist they they hadn't even heard of Christ 
they took on and they said, well, geez, this is, this is something good. Uh, and he stayed with them for quite a while and they started a school and started teaching other people the ways of Christ. The problem is the modern Christian thinks they already know the ways of Christ. And they simply do not. But anyway, I won't, I won't go through the article right now of Jay Rogers, Enter the Critic Celsius. But he clearly does not understand. He, he sees what is supposedly the conflict between Celsus and the Christians, but he doesn't know what a real Christian is. And so therefore he misses the real problem, the real conflict between Christians and the Roman Empire. Because see, Celsus, like many modern Christians, had accepted some very basic premises that are anti-Christ. And you can go read Marcus Aurelius, who Celsus was in the time of Marcus Aurelius, an emperor of Rome, who sounds more like a Baptist preacher, or maybe not Baptist, Methodist maybe, preacher, when, or a Presbyterian there. That's, he sounds a lot like a Presbyterian, uh, without picking on either <laughs> Marcus or the Presbyterians. Uh, but the point is, he's got a lot of good, valuable things that Marcus Aurelius says, but he accepted a couple of principles or precepts that are anti-Christ. And it, it's the old doggy do recipe, you know, it's got the finest flour, finest chocolate, finest eggs, uh, finest sugar, and everything is great in the recipe for this big chocolate cake, except for he puts a little doggy do in it. Well, it ruins the whole cake once you know that there's doggy do in there. You don't want to eat it. And you shouldn't eat it probably. Um, so, so what, what has been this conversation that I've had for the last week? With a home church group, and again, like I say, the early church was mostly home church gatherings. Home congregations is really a better way of saying it. The people congregated in homes in small groups, small intimate groups. But they were clearly connected all over the Roman Empire because you see right away in Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas and Timothy, they're traveling all over and they can go to one town and they're Immediately connected with every Christian in town. Why? Did they send out a radio broadcast ahead of time? Were the people on a phone tree? How were they connected to people from Corinth to Galatia? And how were people in Galatia sending donations to help the people in Corinth? And people sending in Corinth helping people in Ephesus or Syria or Jerusalem? They were connected because they were all organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands which Christ commanded. You wouldn't hardly know that today because that is not something that the church established by Constantine is teaching. It wasn't something they did. They did not organize in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They organized in big, huge, giant congregations. I mean, like, they they had the people of Milan electing Ambrose that he was a contemporary of origin and see we only know about celsus we don't have celsus's original writings we know about celsus because origin refuted the writings of celsus he argued against it now you know celsus is writing 150 years before origin and ambrose but nobody wrote anything to refute celsus to that point 
That is absolutely reasonable. I would absolutely expect that. And uh, that plays to part of the error that we find in Roger's dissertation on uh, pagans and Christians. Because he talks about them having this public square uh, to be, you know, uh, united and tolerant of everybody else. Well, all Christians were tolerant of everybody else. No, but no Christians were casting anybody out of society because of the fact that they were not Christians. That that would be completely contrary to Christ. Christ was going up there and bragging about good Samaritans. The Pharisees had cast the Samaritans out. So what in the world is this whole thing that we see talking about in uh, Rogers when he looks at... Uh, let's see, I thought I... Oh, here it is. He says, Christians ought to join the neutral public square. What's he talking about? The neutral public square. This is a contemporary government. I can guarantee you that the public square is no longer neutral. I mean, just look at Facebook, Twitter. They're censoring everything. And this is going to... They are actually now going to be looking at your texts, your private texts. And if you're sending information they consider to be false... They're setting up a tracking system that China would only hope for. <laughs> so anyway, so when uh, Celsus thought each race ought to honor its own God. I'm fine with that. You can honor whatever God you want to honor. I know it's a false God. Ch- chances are. But... Uh, and, and Paul argued against this, you know, talking about, you know, I, I, Apollo and and uh, by Paul or by whom. No, no, the, the Christians are absolutely tolerant of what other people believe because their beliefs don't require that other people believe them. But what they want to do is not have to support you in your belief. Now, you can't put all these pieces together. Again, I, I use the analogy of a, a arched bridge made out of stone where you lay, you know, you have a beginning stone and an end stone, an alpha and an omega, and you have all these other stones, and a good stonemason looks at the pile of stones and he knows, well, I have to put this one here and this one here and this one here, and finally they put a keystone in. And the weight of all the stones makes this uncemented bridge strong and in place. It just stands there, unbelievably. Because it's rooted at the Alpha and the Omega and all the other stones fit together perfectly. That's the kingdom of God. And they fit together because they press, even without mortar, they press against each other and their weight causes them to stand. Gives them strength. Their weight is the power to make choices, to decide. Things Christians, he says, ought to join the neutral public square. Christians, real Christians, are the neutral public square. Real Israelites. Israelites did not come in, and despite what a lot of people think, and we're not going to go into it right now, they did not come in and annihilate everybody 
in a particular city or a village or in an area that didn't think like they thought. That's the interpretation that we're led to believe. But if you actually look at both the archaeological record and the actual words of the Bible, that's not what they're doing. Because you remember, it says right in, and the text should tell you this. You should just see this when you read the text. You shouldn't have any trouble finding it out. Many of you have missed it. You're not to oppress the stranger in your midst. See, real Christians would not censor you on Google or uh, Twitter or Facebook. They would not censor you. They may not listen to you. They may disconnect you so they don't see your posts anymore because your posts are nonsense. But they're not going to censor your right to speak. There's freedom of speech in the kingdom of God. And there's freedom of religion in the kingdom of God. We know what pure religion is in the kingdom of God. Most people don't know what pure religion is. Pure religion is how you take care of the needy of society. And when he talks about neutral in the public square, if you're a republic, everybody's neutral in the public square. I, you can, you can, you can like abortion. You can think abortion is good. But I don't have to support it. I don't have to support you in your sin. I don't have to buy your drugs or your alcohol or pay you a guaranteed wage while you live on drugs and smoke dope till you can't work. I don't have to support you in that. If you don't take care of your family, I don't have to support you in that. That's what a republic is because in a republic, you're free from things public. Then the public square is neutral. And real Christians know that. They're not censoring you. They will, they'll talk to you about what you think you believe is true, but they know it's not true. So anyway, uh, Rogers goes in and looks at some cases like McCurry County uh, versus the ACLU of Kentucky. But we will save that for another time. And uh, he looks at Origin and Tertullian and all these guys. But like I said, we'll save that for another time. The point is, in Celsus is the doctrine, the true doctrine, uh, whatever you want to call it, this uh, rational doctrine, uh, you have to understand what religion is and you have to understand what pure religion is. And Christians were practicing pure religion. They were not practicing the religion of modern Christians, which is not pure religion. And why do I say that? Because we know in the Bible, we know. It tells you right there in the Bible, very clearly. It's not a difficult translation. Pure religion, unspotted before God, unspotted by the world before God, is how you take care of your needy of society without using the wages of unrighteousness, the benefits from those men who exercise authority one over the other. You will not... Real Christians do not go to the governments of, that exercise authority and ask for their free bread. During the course of this conversation with uh, this individual, uh, Tim, we'll just call him Tim, he even brings up First Corinthians chapter 8. He brings that up. He mentions it. Well, what does it say? Well, what does it say at the beginning? What, what is the first line? Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up. 
But charity edifieth. So why is he bringing this kind of comparison between knowledge and charity? Well, this this word for charity that edifieth uh, is agape. And it's translated 86 times love and 27 times charity. And when Jesus says it, it's mostly translated love. I think almost always is translated love or some, you know, it's also translated dear. And, you know, if you mix it with some other words, um, you'll see feast of charity or other renditions. But basically, 86 times love, 27 times charity. When it's translated charity, that's when Paul uses it. Sometimes when Paul uses it, they say love. But it's agape. It has to do with brotherly love, affection, goodwill, and benevolence. You see, Christians were taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. In the second part of the definition of agape, they talk about a love feast, expressing and fostering mutual love which used to be held by Christians before the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you go read uh, people like Justin the Martyr, he he's back in the days of Celsus, you know, around 148, 155 A.D. And he's talking about, and he's writing Antonio Pius, who was the predecessor to Marcus Aurelius. He was actually like, almost like a godfather to Marcus Aurelius, but he was the emperor for a while. And when he was writing to Antonio Pius, and you're asking like, well, why are Christians writing to Antonio Pius, the emperor of Rome? Well, because the public square was not neutral at this point. It was somewhat neutral still, because you have to remember Rome originally was a republic, then it became an indirect democracy, then it became a tyranny, which Polybius prophesied and prophesied why it would become a tyranny, which Tim doesn't seem to quite get yet. Because Tim still advocates those things that brought about the tyranny of Caesar. And the bondage of Egypt. He hasn't, you know, I expel it right out and he's just not seeming to grasp it. But that's what Christianity was all about. is about setting people free. And Christ was showing you the way. Well, Justin the Martyr talked about the way. And uh, he it was explaining this to Antonius Pius. And he says, and the wealthy among us help the needy. Why is he telling Antonius Pius that? Because... Antonius Pius, in their system, they help the wealthy amongst them also helped the needy. Because Antonius was taxing them. <laughs> now, they would also tax foreigners, because they would oppress the foreigners in their midst, and their foreigners even not in their midst. But it says, the wealthy among us help the needy. And the willing give what each thinks fit. They're making a choice. As to what they think is fit. Now, hopefully they're making it because they're following the leading of the Holy Spirit dwelling in their hearts and minds. But the individual is making the choice as to what to give. And what is collected from what they chose to give, the free will offerings they chose to give, is deposited with the president who succors the orphans and widows. In other words, 
it's given to the president. President of what? The president of Rome? No, the president of the congregation. What is the president of the congregation? Well, it's the minister of the congregation. You could call him clergy and everything. In Justin the Martyr, they use principas, which can be translated president. Because that president means first citizen, kind of. And, of course, the kingdom of God, if you are a congregate in the kingdom of God with the church uh, established by Jesus Christ, you are a government of the people, for the people, and by the people that took care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity. By sharing. By choosing to share. And you would take care of the widows and orphans and any other needy of society uh, that are sojourning amongst us. They, they took care of them. And in a word, he goes on to say, takes care of all who are in need. That's what the church was doing. And now, who's the church? Well, the congregation is the congregation of the people, but the church is would be the ordained ministers of Christ. And now, he has a problem with that. He doesn't believe there's any clergy or ordained ministers of Christ. Well, I understand why he is under that strong delusion but if he could put the things together Tim would begin to figure this out because he says we don't need a clergy but I'm saying to him you have a clergy you have ministers who take care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society it's just not the church established by Jesus Christ the ones who take care of the needy of your society are the ones who exercise authority one over the other. It's the rulers of your constitutional order and system of government. I mean, it wasn't that way at the beginning of America, back then when Alexis Tocqueville came through. Back then, the needy of society was not taken care of by the government because FDR wasn't even born yet. LBJ wasn't born yet. There was no great society. There was no New Deal. There was the church. And Tocqueville points that out. The success in America wasn't the natural resources, the harbors. It wasn't even the Constitution. And we went over that this morning's program on Amos. You go, when the the audios are available for that online, which will be in about nine days, you can go back and listen to the recordings on Amos chapter 6. And we even reviewed a little bit of chapter 5. And we'll show you that that's, he said the reason America was great is because America was good. And the reason America was good is because it was taking care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity, through the churches, through contributions, through, through take, people sacrificing for one another. It did not make a enemy of the poor or the rich. This is, this is what Tocqueville talks about. And he, he writes another uh, papyrus uh, essay on, uh, it's actually as good as a book, uh, on legal charity. Opposing legal charity. What's legal charity? It's when the government forces the contributions of the people to take care of the needy. And we went over that. So you can go look for that recording. And it'll be available in nine days. If you didn't hear it when it was live, that's your problem. You need to be joining the network so that you get this. But anyway, in uh, Justin the Martyr, it goes on and he talks about liturgy. Liturgy. What is liturgy? (laughs) I mean, we have, it can be defined today as prescribed from or set of forms for public religious worship. 
well, what's what's public religious worship? What is religious worship? If religion is how you take care of the needy of society, and worship is service, then the service of those who take care of the needy of society, that's worship. And your support of those who take care of the needy of society makes your support worship. Well, how does the governments of the world take care of the needy of society? Through forced contributions. A portion of your labor belongs to them. That's that's the bondage of Egypt. The bondage of Egypt was that a portion of your labor belonged to the government. 20% back then. Chances are today you're paying a lot more than 20% to the government. So that the government will offer public religion. It's not private religion. It's public religion. And that was the big complaint by Celsus, which we'll see later when we discuss Celsus in more detail. The big complaint of Celsus was that Christians were undermining public religion and the temples were losing revenue because everybody, from the beginning, everybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ was cast out of the welfare system set up by the Pharisees in the temple. But of course, eventually the Pharisees said, we have no king but Caesar, and the apostles ended up working daily in the temple. But what they were working with was free will offerings. Charity. People chose to give. And they provided a public religion through faith, hope, and charity. The Pharisees were still around to some degree, offering offering public religion, but they were forcing the offerings of the people. This, this is the difference in the liturgy of Christ and the liturgy of the world. And it is also the difference between the clergy of Christ and the clergy of the world. And I, when I say clergy, it's immediately going to conjure up images of priests and Presbyterian ministers, etc., who tickle your ears on Sunday so you can continue to sin all week long. What do I mean by sin? Well, you can continue to covet your neighbor's goods through the agency of men who exercise authority. You can send your kids to public school at the at your neighbor's expense. You can take care of the needy of your society through welfare and Medicaid and Medicare. You can take care of your elderly through Social Security, and which will make the Word of God the none effect. That's what Jesus says. Because, and it will even cause the sons to do no more out for their parents. Because, you know, my parents, they got Social Security. that, And I pay into that, so that takes care of them. I don't have to do anything. No. That, that will weaken society. That will destroy society. But that's all taken care of by the clergy of the world. You know... The people who work down at Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and the welfare office, that's your clergy. So no wonder this guy, this home church guy, thinks we don't need clergy anymore. We got the government. The government's going to take care of us. Well, the government that is taking care of you is not the government of God. It's the government of men. It was established by men. It wasn't established by God. And that, that brings us to Paul and, you know, let every man remain subject to the government, according to the Living Bible. No, it's let every man remain subject to the higher 
power. And the word power there is exousia. And he doesn't get exousia. So I show him exousia hundreds of years before Christ, at the time of Christ, hundreds of years after Christ, everyone understood that excusia, exousia, however you want to pronounce it, there's different uh, sources of pronunciation, but that word, and we have an article up on that word, it meant your rights, your power to choose. It's defined as your right to choose, your power to choose. And all power to choose for Jesus was given unto him by the Father. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to start making decisions for everybody. It means that he gets to make all his decisions. And and Paul would not go under the power of any. You know, that that's what Paul is saying. I will not go under the power of any. Why is he saying that? Because he's... What would make you go under the power of any? How would you go under the power of others? Apply for their benefits. Because you can't get their benefits without giving up something. And their benefits are the wages of unrighteousness. It It is enmeshed in a covetous practice. Because you know that whatever benefit you get from the men who exercise authority, the governments who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority, whatever you get from them was simply taken away from somebody else, either from somebody else there on the ground now, or taken away from the future of somebody else. Somebody else is going to have to pay back that debt. You can't be a Christian and want to go that way. You wouldn't be wanting to go that way if you were really, if, if God was writing on your heart, because that, that's totally the antithesis of Christ. You would not want to be dependent upon welfare or Social Security. People say, oh, Social Security, I paid into that. You paid into that, but all that money's gone. It was gone before you paid into it. It's been in debt since it began. It's never been solvent. If you don't believe that, go read our article on Social Security at PreparingYou.com. Because we will show you the actual court cases that say, in essence, that Social Security was never solvent. It was created because the country was already bankrupt and it's stayed in debt ever since. It's never been out of debt. But they weren't going to loan more money unless they had more collateral. So they needed people to sign up so that they would become collateral for debt, surety for debt. You have become a surety for debt. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. You're not following the ways of Christ because Christ came to set men free. The church you've been following have been bringing you deeper and deeper into bondage. More and more into debt. A debt you will never pay off and your children will never pay off. And there, you know, we used to talk about there were four ways out of a system like this. Those four ways are not available anymore. There's maybe will be two ways available. You know, the Israelites found a way out. They they got permission to go. Take them. Go. That's called postlimony. But they really weren't free. They weren't yet, even down on the shores of the Red Sea, they weren't outside of Egyptian jurisdiction. And but they were they were set upon by Pharaoh. What made them free at that point was the power of God. You know, Tim doesn't understand any of these things. So we went through this whole discussion, which began. Let's see how much time we have. I told him it would probably take more than an hour, because 
He's got so many things balled up. And I don't want to pick on him again. I don't want to blame him. There's so much misinformation going on out there. It's no surprise that he's got so many things in a confused state. This all began with a, uh, let's just refer to her as Tracy, uh, asked a question. And talking about the common Hebrew word elder. Appears over 170 times. Uh, this isn't her question. This was my response to her question. Because she was asking about this submitting to the authority of elders. Well, the only elder that we have to submit to the authority of is the head of our family. Usually our father or grandfather is the head of our family. And you should submit to them because we're told to honor thy father and thy mother. And so, if the father says, you know, we're all going to bed, everybody should go to bed. If the father says, we're moving to Idaho, then everybody should move to Idaho. You should submit to that elder. But if my neighbor decides to move to Idaho, I don't have to follow him because he's just my neighbor. I have the right to choose which way I'm going. But sons and daughters should obey their elder of their family. And that's what an elder was. The term elder, you weren't appointed an elder. It's it's amazing how people just cannot let go of these ideas that have been put into their head. And the reason, even though this is why I write and I show you the history, I show you the language, I show you how the words were used at the time, both outside the Bible and inside the Bible, so that there will be a preponderance of evidence that there is no office of elder in the church established by Christ, to which you must submit to as an exercising authority. There were people who were elders of families who were appointed to do some task, some job, whatever. And that appointment, there are several different words in the Greek that mean appointment. The appointment doesn't mean they were given authority over other people. Jesus was so adamant and specific, and of course it meets right into the criteria of all the prophets, that you are not to exercise authority one over the other. That he who is to be greatest amongst you, be considered, you know, if you wanted to have somebody to look up to, would be the best servant of servants of servants. Someone who is tirelessly trying to serve and set other people free. Give them the power of choice. Not take choice away from them. Not coveting what they have, but doing everything as a matter of free will service. That's the worship of Christ. And so I look up all these things and show them and lay it out in a logical fashion so that people will see, but some people just don't want to see. They just avoid the fact that If you are dependent upon the benefits of men who exercise authority one over the other, you are not following Christ. You cannot be a socialist and a follower of Christ at the same time. Because you cannot covet your neighbor's goods. That is a rejection of God. So, you know, Tim goes on and answers uh, Tracy and says that she puts excellent questions. There were offices of authority in the Ecclesia of Christ, but they only exercised authority over what was freely given to them, not over the people. Now, he's quoting me. I wrote that. 
they were not given exercising authority over people, but they did have authority over whatever was given them freely. I mean, if you give me a letter and say, here's a letter, will you ma- mail this for me? I now have authority over that letter. I can't open it up and read it. I'm not given that authority. I can't take it as if it belonged to me. It's like the postman. The postman's given a letter. He accepts a letter. He stamps the the seal on the stamp so he's accepted the money. He's created a trust. And that letter is now held in trust by the post office. And they have rules and regulations on how to get it delivered to where it goes. They can't just scratch out the address of their own choice and decide to deliver it somewhere else. They have to go according to the instruction. But that's not the way the church operates. When you give money to the church or to a minister of your choice, you pick whoever you want to give it to, or goods or your sheep or whatever, because that's what they were doing in the Old Testament. If they raised sheep, they would give sheep. If they raised um, olive trees, they would give olive oil. And that that's what they donated. And they donated it to the ministers who were in charge of seeing to relig- for religious purposes the care of the needy of society. That's what religion was again. It's taking care of the needy of society. And early Israel did it by a corbin of free will offerings. Herod did not do it. And at the time of Amos, they got away from that. In the time of Saul, Saul began to force the offerings of the people. For, again, always for a good cause, supposedly, but still it's force. John the Baptist did not use force. They specifically say that John the Baptist would not use force. If you have two coats and your neighbor has none, share. Do the same in meats. He's talking about sharing. He's talking about charity. Christ is talking about charity. He says charity and they translate it love, but it's charity. And so whatever church you're in, are you taking care of all the needy of your church, congregation, society through charity? Do free will offerings. Or do you send your widows and orphans to men who exercise authority? Because if you do, you're making merchandise of them and you're neglecting the ways of Christ. So, Tim goes on to respond to my statement about exercising authority. He refers to it as the exercising authority document because he's quoting it out of uh, what I wrote in a document at Preparing You called Exercise Authority. Document seems to negate this claim. Why do I make the claim? And then he says I negate the claim. There are some good thoughts in this article, but it is organized in a very confusing way. It will ask a question at the beginning and not answer it with clarity. The truth is I do. And I I show that I answered it with clarity. And but why why was Tim confused? Now he he will deny that he was confused uh later on in this dissertation and we won't get to it all this week because we're in forty seven minutes in, but I might do more shows this week and release them as pet podcasts, but I don't know. It's awful busy. There's not very I'm chief cook and bottle washer here and uh not much help. So uh and lots to do. Uh we have the largest fire in the United States uh, coming, peeking over the rim, uh, just above us. And, uh, we got people up in the woods fighting the fire. And, uh, they don't let me do that anymore. I'm too old, so I'm down here fixing haying equipment. 
<laughs> and making sure there's going to be meat on the table. I have a stack of boxes of food on our dining room table that's supposed to go to firefighters later on this afternoon when some of our people go to the meetings. But uh, So we're awful busy, but the point is, why was this confusing to Tim? What was confusing to it and uh, and to others? And so they're reading it, and they're saying it's organized funny, and it, because there's things that I'm telling him, he is just not looking at. He just avoids seeing it. Doesn't even make a comment on it. You know, it's just like his eyes go over here, and when it comes to that, it just goes right around. He can't see it. And, of course, a lot of people have read the Bible that way for years and years. But when you start acting upon what Christ actually said and start listening to the Holy Spirit, then suddenly you will start seeing those things. And this is why my experience is not only with myself, but with other people, is that when they finally begin to see one more layer of the kingdom because of the leading of the Holy Spirit in them, they suddenly awaken. And they wonder why they never saw this before. I read that a hundred times and I never noticed that. Because it is, and I say this all the time, the reason I emphasize this, as I do always, is that you're not going to figure this out intellectually. I said that this this morning when we talked about Amos. Even though I give you lots of evidence as to what things that you would not normally know by reading the translations because of the fact that he is writing so many things in a symbolic way, you need to understand what the symbols are. It's just a question of of language and metaphor and idioms of that language. But I show you this, but you're still not going to get it without the leading of the Holy Spirit. That is going to be absolutely key always. And mostly why I give people information that I do is to help them with their unbelief. Because at first they're going to say, like, could everybody be wrong? Could we have been so misled? And it's hard to fathom. And then I show them that, 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 and the evidence helps them with their unbelief. But unless they become doers of the word, they will fall away from that belief. You have to act upon your faith. That is what faith is all about. It's a probity. It's a, it compels action. And while it's compelling that action, if you choose or refuse to commit to that action, and love is an action word, you will begin to forget that which you have realized. You will backslide into the lie again. One of the things that Tim wrote, he says, Jesus, as saying, exercising authority, not so amongst you, I, I, I point out that he should understand that in the context, this was said in relationship to what the governments of the Gentiles were doing. At that time, which is the way governments of the world operate today. The governments of the world operate by exercising authority one over the other. And that's, we have to be tolerant of that. We allow them to do that. But the reason their power has grown is for the exact reason that Plutarch says and Polybius says and Peter says and Timothy says and Jesus says. It's because of our covetous practice, because we desire the wages of unrighteousness. We desire the benefits that come by way of the fact that the governments of the world take away from our neighbor. 
usually they take away from the future of our neighbor because they're borrowing money to provide you with those benefits. And that's why you become a surety for debt. That's why you've gone back into the bondage of Egypt. So, you know, Tim responds later to some of the things that I say, saying that the, not liking the idea that I suggested that he was confused. But the reality is, is that, you know, these covetous practices, the Bible warns us against these practices, you know, Moses to Samuel, David, to Proverbs. Proverbs says if you sit and eat with a ruler and you be a man of appetite, put a knife to your throat. He served deceitful meats. David says that your table will become a snare. What should have been for your welfare shall become a snare. Paul quotes David in the New Testament. Because this is the same practice that goes on over and over again. Balaam and the Nicolaitan. It has nothing to do with some guy named Nicholas. That is such a bogus nonsense. Because it tells you right in the Bible. The error of Balaam and the error of the Nicolaitans are one and the same. It doesn't, it's nothing to do with a guy named Nicholas. <laughs> it has to do with you being conquered people and what conquers you? Your greed and your wantonness. If, if you, if sinners entice thee and say, let's all have one purse, that's Proverbs. Consent not. See, America has already become socialist. You got public schools socialist. Social Security is socialist. It all puts you in one purse. Your labor, my labor, that guy's labor down the street, all those people's labor, 10%, 20%, 30% of their labor based on how much they make, belongs to the government. And why does it belong to the government? To provide benefits to the people. Why is that a bad thing? Because Christ said that's a bad thing and we were not to be that way. The early church was not that way. But the modern church certainly is that way. So Tim responds that I didn't say I was confused by it. I said it is confusing that they ask a question and never directly answer it. But of course they did. He goes on to say coveting, seeking, what is yours? Peddling pretext for greed, expecting more than what is due, taking advantage are, are all warnings by Paul to reject clergyism. Uh, where does Paul mention clergyism? That, that doesn't have anything, that's not the definition of clergyism. It's not the definition of clergy. He's got to be in his bonnet about clergy. Meanwhile, he's been made a slave. You know, and and he says we are all in slave and servant status. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Our identity demands no ruling authority. Then you're telling me, Tim, that you do not take any benefits from anybody who exercises authority one over the other. And that you in your home church take care of all the social welfare within your congregation and all the other congregations you're aware of through faith, hope, and charity. And none of you rely on applying for free bread or benefits or free money or 
free health care or anything from men who exercise authority because you're all real Christians. Now, I don't think Tim can say that. Tim wants benefits. Did Tim get a stimulus check? I don't know. I didn't ask him. Uh, Tim looks like he's old enough to collect Social Security or certainly he's capable of getting welfare. Maybe he doesn't. He probably is a hard-working guy. But if he doesn't understand the church through the congregation of the people and free will offering should be taking care of all the social welfare of the people without being dependent upon those men who exercise authority one over the other, which is forbidden in the New Testament. And out of Christ's own mouth when he says, call no man father, he said that, of course, and many of you who listen regularly know that the word he uses there is called no man patri. Well, the Caesar was called patri. He was called Patronus, our father. And he was the one providing benefits through what? The temples. Which takes us back to Corinthians, which Tim brings up. So what? what is Corinthians saying? Well, at least in Corinthians chapter 8, he's talking about the things... Sacrifice to idols, sacrifice to the temples. Pathanos, Saturn, uh, all these things were temples. You know, we have a whole article that goes through a lot of the temples and what they were doing there. And that was one of the things that I kept asking this, even way back in the seminary, which was just, you know, like 60 years ago I was in the seminary. And I was asking, what, what did they do in the temples? What was going on? You know, it was uh, pagan stuff. Pagan stuff is that the government was forcing the contributions of the people, putting them in treasuries and buying food and cheese and what have you and sharing it with the people who were in need. And that whole system of ID in order to do that, you know, a tessera, and we explain all that. We even show you pictures of them. And there was a titleist that would say what your status was. And the whole Roman Empire was going into bondage. Just like you've all gone into bondage. Because you're not preaching the real gospel of the kingdom. So we just came to our 92nd uh, warning. So if you want to know more, join the network. Oh, which is just email network. But then if you want to join the living network, you have to get... Sit down in the tens, hundreds of thousands, some sort of congregational method. You won't probably be close enough to have regular meetings, but you can meet on the phone. And you can start working together to get the real message of the gospel of the kingdom out so that people can repent because America is no longer great and it's getting worse and worse and worse in every country all across the world and all around the world. And I fear for your very souls. So please repent. Seek the kingdom of God. Join the network and we will meet together and we'll share all these things with you on the network. It's between you and God and the Holy Spirit, though. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, 
books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.